You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. Well, back by popular demand, I have Joe Carlosari, Jeff Ross, and Jay Gold to have our macro and Bitcoin mastermind discussion for the third quarter of 2022. This one sure won't disappoint because we had a wide array of differing opinions on where the markets are going, why they're potentially going there, and tons of debates and straw man arguments. You'll find out real fast that it's a very candid conversation. This episode was broken down into two shows, but both are being released today. So if you enjoy the first part, be sure to simply click on the second part right there in your podcast app. With that, I bring you the mastermind chat of the third quarter, 2022. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by the Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Like I said in the introduction, I'm here with our mastermind group. Boy, they've had, these guys had some uh, pretty good calls on the last uh, show. They were expecting a bounce. I know Jeff was, Joe. Jay, I think you were a little skeptical like me as to whether what it was we were going to see <laughs> into, the, into this quarter. But let's start off there. How are you guys feeling now based off of what you've seen? I'm curious. Go ahead and take it away. Whoever, step right up. Joe, why don't you go? Yeah, I'll, I'll go. So I think it's, you have to be under a rock not to feel that the, the real economy is decelerating, right? Like every single leading metric shows that we're headed down here in terms of real economic growth. In terms of the markets, kind of, we, we really have been in this, this huge range. I mean, we dipped down for a little bit there in the beginning parts of June, rallied quite a bit off the bottom. I think from our last episode on May 11th, the S&P is you know, 5% higher, NASDAQ, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jeff, I think it's close to 10% higher from our May 11th episode. Virtually, you know, even, even high yield credit has bounced a little bit since we last recorded and checked in with everybody. The only thing that obviously has been a, a, a kind of a mess has been the Bitcoin market, right? Bitcoin's tanked. I think it's about 20% from our last recording. Um, but everything else has sort of bounced higher. Uh, I, you know, I still think that we bounce a little bit higher here, but obviously the time frame for this window of the bull market, I think is closing rapidly. I really expect the, the real economy to decelerate rapidly into 2023. So uh, enjoy these next few months because I think it can be a, a rocky seas into 2023. So what do you think the driving factor for that peaking, this bounce that we're seeing right now, is it just uh, once the third quarter earnings reports start coming in mixed with a whole bunch of macro factors is what it's everyone's going to notice that it's, it starts stalling out again. Is that what you're thinking, Joe? Well, to me, you know, to get the, the equities, and I've long said this, to get the equities to really roll over hard, I think you need to see unemployment really tick up because passive investment plays such a massive role. I mean, people are just buying it reflexively every two weeks or a month whenever they get paid. Those dollars hit the bank account and they bid up these things, particularly the SBY and, and, and the growth funds uh, in NASDAQ. So you know, to really have a sustained drawdown, you kind of need those passive flows to disappear. And to have the passive flows disappear, you need unemployment to rise, particularly you need it to rise among the higher wage earners. So uh, from my standpoint, I think that's what I'm looking at. I also think that the yields uh, having peaked, and they, I do think they've peaked, that's, that's my view, that it has naturally been a boon to the equity market. As yields continue to trend lower, there's rebalancing into equities, which has stabilized all markets. So the bond market really is the whole ballgame. If the bond market is stable, equities can be stable. And obviously, during the first part of the year, the big headwind was that the bond market was a total disaster, right? We had a four standard deviation move, and that crushed everything. Uh, so for, for my purposes, as long as you've got relative stability in the bond market, you can get a pretty good run here in equities. But it, it, it again, it, it is sort of a counter trend move to the deterioration in the real economy. So what moves the bond? What was, sorry, Preston, what do you think is moving the bonds from here, Joe? Uh, right now at the long end, I mean, I think you've got sort of, you've got really two, um, two competing forces at the short end. It's being held up by the Fed hiking, right? The Fed continuing to be aggressive all the way out to the two year uh, that is driving those yields up or at least sustaining them a lot higher uh, than they would otherwise be. Um, I think that on the long end, you continue to see uh, the flight to safety trade. I think you see people, you know, finding safety in the ten-year, twenty-year plus um, the, the TLT type trade. I think that is going to be a force for the next, for the rest of the year. Really, uh, people are positioning for very bad things economically, and that's what a, that's what an inverted curve shows you, right? It shows you effectively that 
They think the Fed is hiking too fast, but the long-term economic growth is deteriorating. Therefore, there's some flight to safety in, in the long end. So Jay, I was popping up a chart here, which I think is explaining exactly what Joe's saying on two fronts. So he's talking about the negative bond yield curve, which on the bottom of the chart, you can see the 10 minus the two-year right now on 8 August is at a negative 0.45%. We haven't seen it that low since 2000 uh, was the last time it got that low. And then in the 2007, uh, right at the start of 2007, it got to what looks to be like a point, uh, a negative 0.2 or something like that. So we're already lower than that. Uh, on the by, by the way, Preston, did, yeah. did you catch the same, the same spread in the Canadian bonds is it's the most inverted in history. Oh, wow. uh, if you actually I look at, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. It's the most inverted it's ever been in the Canadian long bond versus their short end. So oh, uh, that's Lord. an interesting chart. We don't have that chart, unfortunately, but you can look it up. It's, it's never been as inverted as it is now. I might be able to create it while we're talking here a little bit later. I'll see if I can make it while we're talking and, and pull it up. Uh, the top line here that we're looking at is the unemployment. And Joe, you said something that I completely agree with. Uh, moving into the end of this year, which is, I think if we start seeing unemployment come from this 3.5% that we have displayed on this top line, if you start seeing that start tick up, I think you're going to see the markets get scared as hell. Um, I, I agree. I mean, look at just look at this chart when we had this negative spread. I mean, right there at the start of 2007, look at where it was at in 2000. And then think about the, the deepest part of the recession in 08. It was really kind of the summer of 09 is when it, I, would, I would personally describe it as like the, the darkest part of that crash. And look at this chart here. When you were like 2009 to maybe the start of 2010 is when you saw the worst unemployment numbers. And we are literally at the complete inverse of that right now, like you saw at the start of 2007. So it's a great chart. You, you see a lot of people, especially in the political realms, kind of beating their chest and saying, we have the best unemployment numbers we've had ever. But that has been a, that indicator has been the canary in the coal mine for in the coming 12 months. It's about to get nasty. I, I was trying to find this chart, but I, I heard a guy on CNBC say a few weeks ago that even though we have like the, the low unemployment, people are working more more hours, like double jobs and stuff more than ever. And I couldn't find any data to support what he said, but he's just said that on CNBC last week. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the wages are low, they're full employment, but they're working like two jobs. Well, uh, so it's like it, people are struggling, you know, they're really struggling right now. And you've had a structural change, right? Because you've had a ton of people leave the, the job force, right? Since COVID, um, some through natural things like retirement, some saying, I don't want any more of this mess. I've got enough money. I'm, I'm retiring. I think that changes when equity prices decline. Uh, so it's more on that. I think people will re-enter the workforce if you do see a sustained downturn in equity markets. But you know, that's the big thing. Like in, in Chair Powell's talked about this in a few of the pressers that you know the labor market looks really different, and I think there are reasons why it can hold out, hold out a lot longer structurally because there is demand. There's a lot of you know a lot of my clients are talking about how they're always trying to hunt for people. They can't get workers. They can't get skilled workers in particular. So it may hang on for a little longer than people expect. But yeah, I mean, if that rolls over, you know, forget it. Uh, risk assets are going to struggle. And by the way, this is why. Um, you know, this construction where you have passive investment, this is why the high beta stuff gets hit much harder, things like Bitcoin, because they, they don't have the passive flows that the major indices have. Those guys will always get that bid that comes in. The high beta, the ARCs, the Bitcoins, uh, they're going to get crushed whenever there's real liquidity being drained from the system a lot faster than the major things, because they, uh, the major indices, because they are, are going to have that passive bid. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah. Joe, I want to throw up another chart and get Jeff and Jay your thoughts on this one. Um, so I was interviewing Joe Consorti uh, last week, and uh, this was a chart he shared with me, and him and Nick Batia had constructed this. And what he was showing me was on the federal funds, which you can see here on the, uh, is the orange on this, compared to the two-year, once they went to parity, is when the Fed stopped hiking. Okay, so when we look at these previous cycles, you can go back to 99. So you can see how the federal funds was underneath the two year. Then once the two year started getting bid and it 
came to parity with the federal funds. That's whenever they continued to, to just hold what they got. And then as the two-year continued to get bid, because everyone's expecting the recession, that's when they started to ease in reverse course with their, with their tightening. And so then we saw it again in the, in the 2006. You can see how they held in the 2007. The two-year starts getting bid. And then look in the, in the 2017 through, or well not, it's more like 2018 and the 2019, you saw the exact same thing happen again. Now look at where we're at right now in the gap where the two-year is at 3.2%, the federal funds is at 1.6%. It's not even halfway there. And I'm just throwing it up there because the gap is still massive. And here we are kind of all expecting things to get nasty, maybe in the next you know, quarter to two quarters. And like the spread there is suggesting that they're going to keep Going strong. It, <laughs> is it, isn't this. isn't the Fed fund at two point two to two point five right now? Or yeah, this is a little outdated. This, I think. Okay, oh, no, you're okay, right. Okay. That's a good catch, Jay. That is this is outdated. I just pulled this tonight, so yeah. I'm curious. The I'm curious what not, that looks like. The, yeah, yeah. the data is not pulling the correct. <laughs> I'm only. I'm. I'm just saying. Like, I wonder where the orange <laughs> is at relative to the two year. Where the two years at? Is it? Is it? Is you're it narrowing? You're still hundred bips off. Okay, because because I'm looking at uh, the 2018 December 24th, right, and that's where it like yeah. top ticked in the blue line, and then mm-hmm. you you didn't ca- they didn't catch each other that time. So I'm wondering if there maybe there's something to that. Maybe the bull side of this is maybe we're getting closer to that, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'll jump in. Yeah, I'll good. jump in here quick. Joe, Joe and I, Joe Consorti and I were talking about this on a couple Twitter Spaces recently. And by by the way, Joe is one of my favorite uh, up and coming uh, macro thinkers and totally Bitcoiners. Agree. So he's awesome. Yeah, if you if you guys don't know him or follow him, I would highly recommend it. He's a he's a great thinker. He's just a good dude. I agree with the premise of this too. So basically what people think, they think the Fed moves the markets, but in reality, the markets move the Fed. So the two-year treasury yield basically acts as the cap or the governor for how high the, the Fed can raise the federal funds rate. So right now, what it's saying, if you look at it, and I, and I think the two-year yield actually is uh, up to date, even though the uh, Fed funds rate isn't on that chart for whatever reason. It's basically saying the Fed funds can raise another 50 bips from 2.5 up to 3. They might be able to sneak it up to 3.25, at least today, right? So these things can change. But as of today, they're allowing the Fed another about 70 basis points of hikes. So either 50 or 75. I think they go 50 at the end of the September meeting, and then we'll kind of see what happens. I do like to always uh, hedge myself with a way out because we don't know what the CPI is going to show. We're, we're recording this before uh, we, we see the July CPI numbers and, uh, and then we get the August CPI numbers still before the Fed raises rates again. So lots can happen. But basically, they're, they're putting a cap on what the, the, the Federal Reserve can do and it, it holds true. So if they try to go above that, they break the bond market and, the, and, and we'll start to see serious issues in the credit markets. The stock markets will collapse for sure. So it'll be very interesting to see how they proceed in the next couple of months. Well, to your point, Jeff, the two-year yield made a new high after the June hike, but it didn't after the July. We never took out that top uh, tick of, I think, a 3.45. So that's, that's interesting, right? Because you have another big 75-bit hike and you don't, you don't take out the prior high. That's, that's, that's resisting, right? That's finding that bid there for, for the two-year. Preston, can you go back to that chart? I just want to see yeah. something real fast. I, I was just throwing up Joe's chart here on the CPI with kind of the <laughs> like Jeff who was talking about like where this CPI number could potentially come in here in the coming week and how that might impact what they what they do as far as raising it. We'll come back right. to the we'll come back to this chart, Joe. I want you to kind of talk this because you're the one that sent this to me. Let me pull up the other one. Yeah, I just wanted to comment on what Jeff said. Joe and I and John Ficori, we debate this all the time. <laughs> this is this is uh, you know is is the market telling the Fed what to do, or is the Fed kind of pushing the market? Um, vice versa. The the question I would like, what I'd like to see here is overlay when the Fed made comments that were hawkish prior to these moves. This is looking backwards. So I'd like to see the forward because the market buys the future, and so it'd be awesome. I mean, we're not going to do that right now, but it would be awesome to see this. And just kind of like throw a little marker as to when the when they started to talk down 
uh, um, what they were going to do and gave guidance to what they're going to do or, you know, other federal governors, you know, federal reserve governors yeah. are saying certain things yeah. in the market. Cause I think that says a lot to what the market ends up doing. I don't think the market tells the fed what to do. I think the fed makes comments and then the market reacts before mm -hmm. they actually make the move. Cause that happens later. We, we, we I, know that, right? I mean, it has to be reciprocal to some extent. Like I agree with Jeff. I think that the market wags the tail, especially at certain periods of time where you're at. But at the same time, the Fed is having an impact as they're tightening. They're causing these things, and it's this back and forth or this dance between. Uh, I just did a tweet parties, storm back right? with with John Fakora the other day, and he was saying that that's not the case. You know, he's he's agreeing with you. I'm saying, and then I showed him the comments. I put screenshots of CNBC articles and stuff where the Fed made comments before they made moves on the rates, right? So the rates come later and they come much later, months later. So you'll start to see the market move before he actually makes. So it's, look at it, it's cute to look at a chart and say the market move first. Of course, they move first because they heard what the Fed was going to do. Yeah. So they buy the future. That, that's just how you invest, right? Yeah. You, you have to gamble on the future. So that's, I don't know. Yeah. I just, this is a debate. This is like, what's, who's your guy, uh, Joe, that you always listen to? Who's, who is it again? It slips my mind. Um, my guy, uh, I think you're talking about Jeff Snyder. <laughs> Snyder, Snyder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is all this is all Snyderisms. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of Snyderism. <laughs> I mean, he's great, he's a smart guy, but I, I just I think it's a little cute because if you kind of really want to really tell the tale, you can't look at the charts. You got to look at what the commentary was in the market that moves the market. Yeah, that's a good point, Jay. All right, I'm pulling that uh, CPI one back up, Joe. Can you talk this? Uh, By the way, Bill Alsander, um, uh, uh, Joe, he, he really likes Jeff too. He's been watching his stuff now. Oh, has he? That's great. Yeah. He's, telling, um, he's been sending me links all the time. So this is a chart, uh, and, I, and I, I think it's Research Affiliates um, that, that sources it, and they, they developed the model. And incorporated into the model, uh, so you see basically a, a chart of the potential path for headline CPI year over year. Now, the reason why this is the focus, right, is because the Federal Reserve, particularly Chair Powell and his pressers, has said repeatedly that what they want to see is the headline number. Obviously, it's kind of interesting. Well, actually, it's interesting because the research uh, sort of, sort of uh, you know, dismisses the headline number somewhat and focuses on some of the other metrics, particularly PCE. That's their, their main focus. It's not CPI. But for whatever purpose, uh, Jerome Powell has come out many times and he said that what we want to see is we want to see the headline number year over year and on a monthly basis have a series, a sequence of declines. The problem for us with that is that if you go back and look at the inflation numbers that we had last summer, and this has been referenced by Chair Powell a couple of times, we had a dip right, in inflation during the summer. Some of the, the, the months last year were uh, not as hot numbers as people expected. So people said prematurely, that's it. We've sort of uh, you know, slain the beast of in inflation. What we have now, we're coming into the next four months to be dropped. You're going to have 0.5%, 0.2%, and 0.3% from the 2021 numbers. Now, if you take that and you look at the potential path forward, and this is a model, best case scenario is we stabilize at this level, but you don't necessarily see a big decline in the month over the month or the year over year numbers for the next several prints. The worst case scenario is that even, uh, even if we sort of trend lower on the second derivative of the growth rate, you still end up going higher for the rest of the year. So I think that the, the takeaway from this is that the likely base case based on this model, if it is correct in factoring in the drop months from 2021, is that you're going to get higher prints through the end of the year. Now, but the Fed has two options, right? They can either reverse course and go back on what they said just a couple months ago and said, no, no, just kidding. We don't really need to see months of months, a month, back to back months of, of declines on the headline number. They can do that. That's option A. Or option B is uh, really they say we have to stay the course. We're hiking for a lot longer. And I think that uh, this, some of the, the most recent print and also the most recent remarks from Powell. I think that's why you saw this move between the December and the March contract for Eurodollar futures, which is another chart we can get to at some point. But uh, for those just listen, looking at this chart, I think the takeaway is that you should expect inflation to uh, at most likely either stabilize or head higher for the remainder of the year on the CPI year over year numbers. To, to your point too, Powell in the last meeting said that he will continue to make decisions meeting by meeting and carefully comb right. through the data. So <laughs> this is the data. So he's left himself the option to pivot if he wants to. Of course he is. Jeff. If I, yeah, if I can throw my nickel in here. The, so I completely agree with this premise. The only caveat will be if the markets tank uh, seriously uh, leading into this. So if the Fed does something, if something comes out as a surprise, something out of left field, 
and the, the markets collapse, that will drive down uh, inflation significantly and cause sort of a possibly a deflationary type event similar to what we saw towards the end of 2008, 2009, uh, early 2009. So that's, that's the one uh, caveat to all of this. If that happens, then we could see everything reset much sooner. We could see inflation come under control, although it would be at the expense of uh, you know, markets collapsing. That would, that would mean the S&P 500 is probably down another 20, 30% or so from here and the NASDAQ even more. So that's something that I'm considering. Uh, but yeah, uh, otherwise we have sticky high inflation and it's going to be a tough year. I, I don't envy the Fed in their position right now. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Hey, I want to uh, transition over to something that I've been toying with, and I, I want to run it by you guys just to hear your opinions on it. Um, I get frustrated when, when I'm explaining Bitcoin to somebody and like the first thing that they do is they're just like, oh, well, it's down whatever percent in the last year, it's down or they're, or in a bull market, people, and I'm guilty of this, will be like, it's up this amount since the last year. And it's almost like you're just picking random points in time. And, um, you know, I've always tried to say, well, to pick any four year period of time because of the four year having cycle, pick any four year period of time. And what you're going to find is that you have like just tremendous performance in it. But then I started, uh, with this contraction that the, that the central bankers are doing, uh, recently, I'm thinking, why not go back and kind of plot when they were expanding and when they were contracting based off of policy. And then let's mark each one of those points in time when it was when it was the peak of the contraction and they reverse course like that moment in time 
to the next time that it was peak contraction um, so that I can conduct a measurement from that point to this point. Almost like if you were going to measure a, uh, a frequency, you'd take it from the top to the top, or you'd take it from the bottom to the bottom, but you would, you would figure out whatever that frequency is in order to figure out how many hertz it is, and, and that's how you do it when you're dealing with signals. So why not try to do that with Fed policy? So I'm going to plop a chart up here for you guys. Uh, let me see if I can get it. And what I did is I took the central, the global central bank balance sheet, the Fed, it was, it was the ECB, it was uh, the Bank of Japan and the Chinese uh, central bank. And I combined all of their balance sheets basically over the last 10 years, and I dropped it onto this chart. And you can see I have two lines, um, and you can kind of see the the cycles as they're as they're playing out. Now the top line is not adjusted for the broad money supply. The bottom line is adjusted for broad money supply in the denominator. And the reason that I did that, so and I converted obviously all the central banks' currencies into dollars, and then I took the dollars and then I adjusted them for broad money supply, and then one that doesn't have the adjustment, the M two uh, money supply. The reason I like this bottom one, this light blue line on the bottom, is because I think you can see the tightening and the expansion better. And you can see how it's really not getting worse after it's been M2 adjusted. Like this cycle here, like when you're looking at the non M2 adjusted, you, it looks just enormous compared to the previous expansions, right? But then when you look at the bottom, it's pretty similar to the expansion that took place from 2017 through 2020. Uh, this most recent one that we're in. And so the black lines that I have there is just kind of earmarking these expansion and contraction. It's like basically one cycle, right? That's one frequency. And then what I wanted to do is I wanted to go back and look at Bitcoin's performance during each one of those frequencies, and then look at pretty much everything else during each one of those frequencies to see like what the relative performance is. Because I I feel like that is a point in time that everybody could come to an agreement on as a, a good place to kind of snap the chalk line, if you will. So this is the methodology. Now I'm going to show you the performance across uh, just the, some different baskets. So this is the first, and just so you guys know, going back to this one, I'm going to start time now in the in the period that we're currently in, and then I'll go back through each one of these. So here's the one we're in right now. You can see the black line right over there in the, the crash, the March crash of 2020. And you can see everything kind of reflate out of that. Now, just so people understand what we're comparing the performance to, obviously Bitcoin there, you got the NASDAQ, you have a bond index, you got gold, you got the Russell 3000, you got a commodities index, you got high yield debt. And then the, the one, the dark red line that you guys can see there is actually just the central banks, the collective balance sheet itself uh, to kind of represent the, the amount of units kind of being added in and taken out of the, of the system, which was 44% since the, uh, the bottom of the 2020 uh, COVID. And so when I'm looking at this, uh, Bitcoin is still doing the best uh, with a 284% return. And the next best was a commodities index of 101%. I'm going to just pause there. Like, what, do you, what issues do you have with the methodology or, or just kind of what I'm walking you through? I, I love it personally. If I can jump in, I, th I think it's great what you're, what you're doing with this because I, I think exactly the same thing, Preston. I feel like I'm, I'm assuming it's going to um, go where we think it's going to go. That basically when we have periods of liquidity expansion, risk assets absorb that liquidity and Bitcoin still being seen as kind of the world's, you know, of the uh, most volatile, highest beta risk asset, it absorbs the most liquidity in the good times. And then when that contracts, the liquidity gets taken away from Bitcoin and from other risk assets. That's when we see that downdraft. I think of it like an accordion, almost kind of expanding, shrinking, expanding, shrinking. And so you want to own these kind of assets when when the central banks are expanding the monetary supply and when they're taking it away, you want to avoid them in general. Joe looks so skeptical. I, <laughs> yeah, no, I am skeptical because I think it, it I think it, uh, I, and I like, I like the idea. I, I think it confuses the causality versus the correlation. And the reason for that is I think it goes back to what QE actually does. 
which QE traps safe liquid collateral on the central bank's balance sheet, thereby depriving the private sector of the credit creation impulse it needs to actually uh, drive real lending, real, real money printer go burr in the economy. What QE really does and why you see this chart respond like this is that QE tampers down volatility. And if you go, that's why I focus so much on like Bitcoin assessed in terms of the VIX or, or volatility in general. When you deprive the market of safe and liquid collateral, when you trap it on a central bank's balance sheet, both in the Fed and in the United States, you do provide a market of last resort for treasuries, right? It stabilizes the whole system. It pushes people further out on the risk curve. It, it, res, it, it enables uh, fiscal policymakers to uh, do a ton of stimulus into the system. But really what, it, what it's doing here, what you're doing is you're artificially suppressing volatility. And then you see this explosion in risk assets from the suppression of volatility. The system is trying to fix itself in these downturns and these liquidation events. And the contraction uh, of collateral onto the central bank's balance sheet doesn't necessarily increase liquidity generally. So you have these metrics that show like global liquidity, which is, is a, a long discussion. But suffice to say, I think it's, it's a correlation and the causation is really the suppression of volatility. And once you start to drain uh, uh, liquidity from the system in the form of QT or, or rate hikes or any uh, lack of fiscal stimulus, like a fiscal cliff, what you do is you reintroduce that volatility. And in a high volatility environment, stocks sell off, bonds sell off, Bitcoin sells off. It's all about the volatility. Volatility and the efforts of QE to suppress volatility is what's showing you what's in front of you. That's what's the result of that chart. Joe, what do you think? What do you think of Lynn's uh, argument that instead of kind of getting caught up in the Jeff Snyder argument, which is QE doesn't induce money printing, which I think is partially correct. If it, but Lynn's point is when you got the Treasury and you have the the Fed acting together as a team, you're going to see broad money supply expand, yeah. right? Which is that's right. Which is the real printing. And so totally right. What I was going back to this slide here, this bottom one is accounting, in my opinion, it's accounting for both of those. It's accounting for the where the blue line is not, right? This blue line is just showing you the the balance sheet and it's not accounting for the broad money supply adjustment, which you are seeing in in the lower chart. So Lynn's exactly right when it comes to fiscal stimulus, right? We all agree that if the government's spending money, that is solid money printer go burr. And that's cash being injected directly into the economy. And it's spent on things like Bitcoin. It's spent on things like commodities and drives up the price of everything. The problem I have, or at least the, the, the question I have about how, how this is presented is that if a bank, okay, absorbs a bunch of treasuries, the central bank rather, absorbs a bunch of treasuries, puts it on their balance sheet. Those banks now have a ton of bank reserves, right? Yeah. But those bank reserves can't get into the real economy. They can't even get into risk assets yeah. Yeah. unless, unless, right, they decide to lend or unless the government spends a bunch of money. And to the extent that QE enables the federal government to spend a lot of money, that's a totally legitimate point. And Lynn's exactly right. I don't dispute that. It, it's kind of like the enabling for the policymakers. But then what happens when the fiscal stimulus dries up? That's the story of 2022, right? Now the rubber meets the road and you see people having less cash to go around. So you're counting it twice. If, if, a, if a bank is just buying up treasury bonds and it's sitting on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet without any accompanying fiscal stimulus, I think you know, Lynn's comment to me on Twitter was like, that's just meh. You know, so that chart you're showing is like, okay, unless there's the accompanying fiscal impulse, you're not going to get the, the rapid acceleration. And there's actually times you can see that on the chart. If the Congress is not spending money, um, you, know, you can lay it over actual fiscal um, outlays from the federal government. You're going to see, you know, these periods where you're not seeing the rip. So you can see how there's the variation, right? What's yeah. the big difference with that last black bar there, Preston? The big difference is we pumped, we finally realized, Hey, if we give people $2 trillion in direct stimulus and PPP and look what's going to happen, it's going to rip. So if you're explaining to Bitcoin, Bitcoin to folks, uh, like to me, I look at it as a necessary, inevitable conclusion that we move towards UBI. I think it's already done. It's just a question of how long before we have to move to that. And then I think Bitcoin's price is going to appreciate uh, probably beyond all our wildest bullish dreams on this call. Um, I think that comes, and I think it comes predominantly you know, outside of the United States and eventually in the U.S. So I agree with everything you just said. I'm just trying to, where do you choose to snap the chalk line when you're, when you're conducting 
a measurement of performance of Bitcoin versus every other opportunity you have in the marketplace? How do you how do you say right here to right here is a true level of performance if I'm comparing it to the S&P 500 or the Nasdaq or you name it any anything on the planet? How do how do we decide where it starts and where it ends in order to say this is a true measure of the gain in the frequency? Yeah, I mean it's it's similar how they do equities, right? It's kind of arbitrary to some extent, it's year over year sort of, you know, Jay and I have talked about this the the kegger of Bitcoin, right? Like you know, I don't think it. I don't think it's a good necessarily, or I don't think it's a necessary metric to break it down to exact specific points. You have to take the the years where you get outsized growth and the years where you get you know the contractions and take it all together and say, look, uh, on a long term basis, this still has a ton of runway ahead of it, just relative to all these other assets which are much more mature. But but how do you offset for the first four years of Bitcoin, which was growth beyond comprehension like do you think yeah. that that should be included in in how a person today probably should not be looking? yeah so yeah. i'm trying to i'm trying to say okay here's and i think that those early years were it was so fresh so new there were so few participants that it's it's really hard to even remotely compare that performance to what we've seen in the last call it five years yeah. Because especially once we got over a hundred billion in market cap, like now you're now you're comparing something. Well, I mean, just look at this look at this chart right here, right? Since the the March 2020, you know, that was that was when they stepped in and they released the floodgates, right? So what's Bitcoin's performance versus every other major index since that period of time? And what I'm what I'm seeing is that it's a 284% return. Commodities were 101%. What's our light blue? Uh, NASDAQ is 80%. And I'm saying, okay, so if you want to tell me that, w- that the, the cherry picker is going to step in and they're going to say, well, since October, it's down 60%. And I'm like, yeah, but I haven't been in it since October. I've been in it since back then. And in my mind, I'm crushing it <laughs> relative to like all these other things. And so that's it's too short term though. Like one year here, like what we typically do is you, you you don't look at 2009 from the start point. You look at like 2013 on, and it's still beating everything, right? So I, I I look at it like it's a secular growth trend. I'm an early stage growth investor in technology stocks and yeah. in, in private companies, and I don't look at things of what they're going to do in one or two or five years. I look at what's the market size that they're in, what's the growth, and how are they going to gain that growth over time. Same thing with Bitcoin, right? It's a, it's the a scarce, the true scarce asset on the planet. It's the only true scarce asset on the planet, and everything else, including the stock market, they're creating more IPOs. There's more inventory. There's more supply. They they do splits, etc. You know, and add more. I should say they add more shares constantly. I don't see anything else there that that is scarce. So the, so you have to just say, do you believe over time there'll be increasingly more people that adopt and buy and own and hold Bitcoin? And there has been so. Rather than looking at the price action, there's other things you look at to try to convince people that this growth story will continue. And you can look at the number of addresses, you can look at all those types of metrics, the hash rate, et cetera. And I, I don't think the price action over a one-year period is very helpful for anybody. If they're a trader, it is. But if you want to be an investor and, and hold this for the long term, you, you can't look at price action over a one or two-year period relative to every other asset. To, to me, that just makes... I, I don't ever go there with people. Because you started this discussion a few minutes ago saying, how do you convince people that you're talking to about Bitcoin? I don't ever go on price action in the short term. It's, it's, it's relative to other assets. It doesn't make sense. So I look at like, what's the big picture? What's the long term? What's the five and a 10 year plan? And, and that's the way I speak about it. Yeah. I guess it, always, it almost always starts off with a debate about the performance. And it always starts with what, what, what the price action was over whatever defined frame of reference they pop out. Right. And you're just like, all right. So anyway, let me show you the, uh, so here's the, uh, if, if you buy into the, the, the expansion and the contraction of the broad money supply uh, based off of the, the balance sheets or whatever, whether you buy into that or not, I'm just going to show you a couple more periods. So this is the period we're in right now. Here's the period previous to the one we're in right now, based off of the, the initial sh- chart that I showed you guys. Here's the period before that. And here's the period before that, which this one's really interesting because the broad. What, 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 the, what are these? Sorry, are these one-year periods? Is that what this is? I no, 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 no. It's going back uh, to going back to this. Can you see 13. This, this chart right yeah. here? 
Yep, 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 yep. So each of those dark black vertical lines. Got the periods. I got it. I got it. Yeah. I'm saying yeah, that you. that light blue is the credit cycle, the mini credit. Did you cycle. start from the 13? Do you have a 13 to present? Yeah. So here's the 13 to. Okay. Here's. I'm sorry. Nope. Nope. That's not right. And, uh, and, and the black uh, bars, uh, Preston, just so I got this right, the black bars go from, from yeah. the beginning of the expansion to the beginning of the tightening. Is that right? It goes from tightening to, to tightening. Oh, what I meant bottom to bottom. Okay. Yeah, bottom, gotcha. bottom, bottom gotcha. to bottom. Yeah. Gotcha. What I meant to say is, yeah, I guess you don't have it, but I meant 13 to 22. Do you have that chart? Um, no, I don't have 13. I mean, you know what that looks like. It's like not even in the same. It's like a straight That's line. You, gotta, you, you, you have to show people that because it's like, you ah. know, take, a, take a number, right? Take a number to get into the asset and, and you can hold. And if, and if you're freaked out over the one or two year performance, you're not going to worry about that. And you can, you can lay into it if it's performing well. And if not, you just hold on to it. That's the way I speak about it. So I'm, the, what, I'm trying to, <clears throat> what I'm trying to identify, Jay, by doing it like this, I'm trying to look at Am I in the current environment outperforming, right? In this current credit cycle that we're in, which I would argue started, the, the bottom of it was March 2020. They stepped in, they flood the system with a bunch of, of printing, right? Some of it turned into printing, some of it didn't. However, you want to go down that argument, right? But I think it's pretty clear that some of that printing has entered the system. So how has Bitcoin performed since March of 2020 versus everything else? And then once it becomes really obvious, and I think we're going to have an obvious event where they've reversed course, they're now flooding the system again with what Joe said, more UBI, you name it. Like They're going to have to go down this direction. That's going to be the moment in time when it's really obvious because things are breaking that you snap the chalk line to end the March 2020 credit cycle. Right. And then I want to look at, at that exact moment. I want to see how Bitcoin performed to all these other major indexes. Sure. Yeah. Because if it didn't outperform, yeah. if it didn't outperform, mm-hmm. well, then what did outperform? Right. Because that's the thing I really want to keep a close eye on in the next cycle. What was it? Because I can well, tell you right growth, now. It shows, you, it shows you here the second in line is what? Growth stocks? It's no. Nope. Uh, so this is the cycle we're in right now. Right. Yeah, what's green? And the dark green is uh, an index GNR, which is a commodity index. Right, commodities. And energy. it did 101%, and Bitcoin's at oh, not energy, commodities, sorry. Yeah. And then last, what was the last one? Was it looks like the second uh, to that? The second bonds. to that is the Qs, right? Bonds. The second is Qs? What's now, the light negative, blue? Negative 20%, which was the yellow, is TLT, which is a bond index. Okay. And that's been Long the worst. bonds. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Interestingly, high yield uh, bonds HYG it has had a nine percent. Isn't isn't return. the blue color the second one to, the, the, right below the uh, right below GNR? Yeah, that that's uh, the Nasdaq eighty percent. That's what I'm saying. Nasdaq. That's okay. that's the, that's the second best performing. Other second than Bitcoin, best. Right? Yes, I'm sorry. So that's right. So growth is always it's going to go to growth it, typically, right? Yeah, I mean, they're going to they're going to jump in for the for the for the next I, bull run. I think it's important if based on this methodology, if you buy into this methodology, right? It's not over yet. Like we're still our expectation is in the coming 6 to 12 months that this thing's going to keep tightening. We're going to see m- more pain in the in the broader economy. So, you know, if Bitcoin sells off massively, it could maybe not outperform that commodities index. I don't know. I, I suspect it will. But can you flip to the previous uh, cycles? Just go back while you're talking. I just started to interrupt you. I just want to hear. I want to see rather what what it looked like. Which so, one did you want to see, Jay? Well, you have the current current trend, and then just go back to the other cycles, okay. just one by one. So this just was give me like cycle, three seconds. This each. was the previous cycle, okay. ending in the 2020 meltdown. So there, there's yeah, and you can see on this chart. Um, the Qs were number two to Bitcoin. That's that correct. Right? With the forty-two. Okay, and then you return. really can't tell the rest. It was, I guess, number three was the, small the cap bonds. stocks. Uh, Is it small caps? I don't know. The, the next That's, one down was TLT. Yeah, it's long-term uh, which bond. is your long-term but, bonds. You're which, talking the next best make, performer. Yeah, which should yep. make sense considering I th- I think everybody on this panel would agree that was the peak performance of the bond market, right? When when 2020 March of 2020 happened, I think we mm. could all agree that 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 might that moment might have been the highest prices you're going to see in TLT. You mean forever? 
Maybe. <laughs> it depends what, what are these cpi numbers going to do and uh how high go, are they going to be before yeah, they step I, back I, in right <laughs> go one cycle back if we could Preston. go one more back i want to see and, and I, think Joe, the, Joe, I think the 10 year goes negative next year so that's my my Joe, call so i think you can, you could, <laughs> i think you could be right like i'm i'm not saying that was the bot or the the top in price in price terms and yield terms hey i'm open to that idea that it could get bid like that yeah. I'm totally open to that idea. Now, do I think it's the most probable? I don't know. I think it's maybe a coin toss. But I, I you know what? I'm throwing this out here because I've been personally, I've been building these and I've been personally thinking about it. I haven't posted it on Twitter. And I'm just trying to think through a methodology that I can personally conduct analysis and be still uh, objective in my thinking as to true performance. Well, let me let me the, steal man sorry Preston. Yeah, go ahead and, and just but part of the part of the problem is is where do you snap the chalk line to between periods to be objective with yourself uh, go ahead joe so go pull up the 2017 chart right you, and, and we're all familiar with it uh you know yeah. uh, okay so you, you let's talk about liquidity and let's talk about tightening right through uh, Bitcoin had an incredible run, as we all know. I think it, you know, somebody who came into Bitcoin in 2015, uh, that was really the huge major bull run that I remember ex extensively was uh, the 2017 bull run. Uh, and then through virtually all of 2016 and going into uh, the, the, the top, right, the Fed was hiking, right? The Fed was hiking, uh, uh, tightening credit conditions. You had QT. Uh, giving, you know, starting, I think, in the, the Q3 or Q4 of 2017, continuing through Q18. But the question I have for you is, like, how do you explain to somebody if you're saying that, well, it really is the central bank intervention and the, the central bank's monetary policy that's driving this? How do you explain to somebody that you see this rip in the Bitcoin price throughout 2017 as they're hiking and uh, in the, the latter half of 2017, draining liquidity through the system in the form of QT? But Joe, they were hiking from 2015 on. They started that. Yeah, in 2015. yeah, that's my point. Look, look how yeah. great Bitcoin did in the hiking cycle, guys. I, that's, well, I'm just asking. What's, so, so that's my, not what his chart is showing. Yeah, my, the chart is showing expansion of M2, right? My argument there, Joe, would have, and, and I'm not trying to reverse engineer a, a counter argument. I would just say that based on the sheer size of Bitcoin back then, you're dealing mm. with something that. Is it being driven by central banks or is it just being driven by you got an extra thousand people in there buying it? And, and because it was so small at that, at that point yeah. relative to now, it could just move the market price. Mm -hmm. I, I, I still know. think it's that small. I think you, you see a few pieces on the macroeconomic chessboard move, uh, confiscatory policies. You can see a whole host of different things uh, from emerging markets that can make Bitcoin absolutely rip, even with. QT, even with hiking interest rates, we have, we, it's a still tiny market. It's smaller than you know, single companies in the S&P 500. Yeah, for sure. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping. And say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there, helping you counter the rising costs of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative. And keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. 
USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Let me, uh, uh, let me see here. Sorry, I got lost in the... <laughs> <laughs> the slides here. Um, I wanted to pull up, and this is this is kind of useful because I'm showing up uh, right now. I'm displaying the uh, Nasdaq, and you can see a little bit of this momentum that we've been talking about uh, from the start right. of 2022. You can see, uh, and just so people know, I have I have some different momentum tools kind of displayed here on my chart. And just for people that are maybe not familiar with these momentum tools. So I personally like an ATR, which is an average true range. And I also like moving averages. And this is kind of both of them. And when they're both red or they're both green for me, that's kind of an indicator that that for a long-term trend, that's what I think is how I base my opinions on whether something's a, in a positive trend or a negative trend. So when I look at this and whenever I really started turning bearish on the broader markets, I was looking at things like QQQ and the SPY and, and other indexes that, that helped me form the opinion. I think credit's tightening. It's going to be a, a rough environment moving forward. And as long as neither one of these break or start turning green, I'm, I'm saying I don't think a pivot's in place. So with respect to QQQ and here, I'll, I'll zoom in on where we're at right now. And you can see similar to like what Joe was saying, we're kind of at this crossroads where maybe it can, it can bid a little bit more, but it's probably starting to get exhausted. I would agree with that simply because I think you still have this really strong negative spread between CPI and, and treasury yields. And until that starts to get closer to parity with each other, either through a, a swift sell-off, like Jeff said, uh, coming down to where the yields are at, or they keep raising the, the rates to get them closer to the CPI, I think that this is going to continue to be in a negative trend. Fancy anyway. chart. I like it. I'll just throw out, I just wanted to throw out my two cents a little bit regarding kind of where we are in the markets. And, and I think for all of us, we all know when we see the Fed raising rates, right? We're in a rate height cycle and we see the yield uh, curve inverted like it is. We know that a recession is inevitable in some time in the future, but it doesn't mean it's imminent necessarily. And so this rally that we've been seeing since mid-June, it's possible that this rally actually has legs and that this thing can go on actually for several quarters, which is kind of interesting. And so, we, you know, based on this chart you're showing here, Preston, it looks like it may be coming up against a wall. It's also coming up against the 200-day moving average pretty soon as well for the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. 
they, it has reclaimed pretty solidly the 100-day moving average, which is another you know strong momentum indicator that a lot of people use. So I, I'm personally, um, I, I'm kind of 50-50 on where it goes from here. I think that we may, uh, I, while I think we're on borrowed time for risk assets, and, and that includes Bitcoin as well uh, for the time being, I think that they can go higher. It's just a matter of how much and for how long, right? And so based on the stuff that I'm looking at, I think things might get ugly again, kind of heading into the first half of 2023 based on GDP kind of metrics and looking at year over year comparisons. It's looking like we could see some even more deeply negative GDP numbers at that point. So to me, it would make sense that we kind of have this sort of um, impressive rally that that most people don't believe heading all the way up until, say, mid-November, which happens to be right around the midterms or so. And then as the markets look ahead, usually about six weeks, uh, that's kind of the, the metric I like to use. Uh, you know, one to two months is kind of where the, you start to see regime changes before uh, the next quarter. At that point, things could get kind of ugly again. So I'm, I'm personally, I just, just love the chart, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if this actually broke through your upper line here uh, after a couple tries uh, and then went higher for the time being. So I don't yeah, know if that made like, any sense, but I'm, I, I'm look- actually kind of bullish at the moment. It looks like that's going to flip right there. It'll flip green, right? Yeah. Looks so like it's on your twist. on your moving average, and so this goes by this slingshot. Is the if you're on Trading View and you're looking that up, that looks like that's getting ready to go. For me personally, both of them. So the ATR is the is that red line, and it's showing at about a three three six on the NAS on the QQQ index for the Nasdaq is when that would also turn green. So I use I use two of them just so that they can kind of both and normally they flip at the exact same time so this is kind of odd that on the moving average side it's getting ready to flip green while the other is still pretty red for the most part what is that about public math don't don't ever do public math it's <laughs> it's about seven percent i would guess it's about seven percent more from where it's at right now on qqq yeah something yeah. like that so uh yeah let me stop sharing that before other people do the math now everyone's gonna be laughing because it's probably not even close to that um <laughs> Hey, Joe, you sent over a bunch of... Is there anything else you guys wanted to cover on that one? Joe, did you have some charts that you wanted me to pull up from your bank that you sent over? Yeah. Uh, so um, let's talk about this margin debt chart, if we can. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a And, and, and I, want, I wanted to hear Jeff's take on it. I know what I think about it, but uh, he, he, he had commented privately about uh, how he was uh, kind of uh, shocked by that one. So maybe we could pull up that one. Okay, there you go. Okay, so for those describing, uh, just listening and not seeing the image here, I've got a, a chart of a yearly change in mar- margin debt. Uh, we're putting in numbers here in terms of the yearly change. I think it's the biggest drawdown we've had in, uh, I don't know, what, more than 20 years um, in terms of a yearly change. Uh, so that's interesting. I don't know, Jeff, what do you think of this? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously this, this, uh, adds credence to if you're feeling bullish at the moment, right. If you're at kind of all time lows from a year over year change. Now, obviously this is just a, uh, reaction to what happened a year earlier. So it was all time highs a year earlier. Uh, and now we're kind of at all time lows. That's generally a great sign, right? That generally means that margin is kind of being eroded away out of the market that people aren't, you know, levered up. To, to their noses to, to be uh, more politically correct on what I talk about. That's a good sign. That means that people are uh, kind of scared right now. Um, con- confidence is low. That's usually, uh, that sows the seeds for the next bull run kind of thing. Now it's interesting, you look at this, at this chart, you would think, man, are we at the start of the next major bull market? And are we not going to have any kind of serious drawdown? I personally don't think so, right? Because of what I see, because of what the yield curve is saying and the Fed fund, uh, the Federal Reserve is raising rates, we're going to have a recession basically guaranteed at some point, somewhere down the road, maybe a year, maybe a year and a half, maybe even two years. I think it comes a little sooner because I just think things move a little bit faster now and the Fed is raising rates more quickly. So I think it comes more quickly, like probably the first half of 2023. Mark, you know, and, and risk assets, equities markets, Bitcoin, they tend to react very poorly uh, during recessionary type conditions. So I still think we're going to have a pretty serious drawdown before that's over. But you look at this chart and that at least for, for me, this, this makes me optimistic, at least for the next several months. Well, the one that makes me even more optimistic, if you can pull up Preston, is the, the margin debt as a percentage of the S&P market cap. Mm-hmm. Um, which to me, this is, this, this is a really bullish chart. I mean, you see 
You don't see the sort of bubbly market cap uh, margin ratio that you saw in 2008. I mean, look how far declined we are. In fact, the margin uh, seemed to come down and bottom around the same level as it did uh, you know, prior to the pandemic there in late 2019, which is fascinating as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, look, I mean, you're, you're at 2000 levels of margin debt in terms of percentage. So still, still relatively elevated. It's not like it's down to the, you know, nineties levels or at 2000 levels, but yeah, I mean, this does not show you the sort of bubble exposure to, to equities that uh, you had in 2008, at least with margin debt. Hey, if you're still listening, uh, we pick up the rest of this conversation in the next uh, part, which is just right there in your podcast app. So just go ahead and scroll down there and click on part two, and it picks right up where we just left off. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.